Before we start the show, I just wanted to reach out and say that if you are loving listening to The Truth Prescription as much as we are loving making it, please subscribe to the podcast. Hit that subscribe button. Rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and iHeartRadio, to name a few. And come check us out at www.thetruthprescription.com to get more insights and info, because the truth will set you free if you let it. The truth about stigma is so many of the things that are stigmatized are stigmatized because the surest way to maintain an inequity or something that's not a good practice across the board is to stop people from talking about it. Gentlemen and ladies, brothers and sisters, people, whoever you are and wherever you are, welcome to the Truth Prescription Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sekou Gathers. And each week I interview successful people from around the world and discuss how accepting the truth can propel your career and help you live a life of gusto and purpose. No mantras, no gimmicks, just the truth. So close your eyes and open your ears and let's get into this. Come on. Good people, welcome back to the Truth Prescription Podcast. Today, I had the pleasure of interviewing Ms. Bianca Ford. She's an attorney with a very interesting past uh, that we'll get into, a former uh, U.S. District Attorney. Ultimately, she had an experience where she was pulled over in a traffic stop and arrested, and uh, her story culminated in a book called The Prosecuted Prosecutor. So her truth was interesting. She talked about how things are stigmatized And often that stigmatization, if that's a word, causes people not to really bring up or address issues that need change. And she gives some examples. We talked about the legal system and how she saw real reform occurring in our legal system. And we talked about some ways that uh, she was able to transform her pain uh, into power. So it's a good interview, particularly with what's going on in our country today. Very timely. I hope you enjoy it. Close your eyes and open your ears. Let's go. Good people, welcome back. Another episode of the Truth Prescription Podcast. I'm your humble host, Dr. Sekou Gathers. And today, we have the pleasure of talking to Miss Bianca M. Ford. How are you, Bianca? I'm doing well, Dr. Sekou. How are you? Glad to be here. Doing beautiful. Thank you so much. Love the yellow behind you. One of my favorite colors. All right. (laughs) So... Let's uh, let me give the people a little bit of introduction about you. Bianca's interesting. I don't know that at age eight, uh, age six, I knew I wanted to be a doctor, but at age six, she knew she wanted to be a lawyer. She previously has worked at a corp- as a corporate attorney, had a eight month stint in Dubai, and then her life took her to she took a, a big leap, I call it, and joined the U.S. Attorney's Office, and all was well until uh, that fateful day, we'll call it. Uh, <laughs> In November of 2019, where she was arrested for a traffic stop, which greeted a whole lot of other things that we'll get into. She's currently, she's an activist. She an, has an expertise in ex- ethics and compliance. And she's an author of the new book. Let me just show it here on the screen. We'll talk about it. Prosecuted Prosecutor. And uh, it's a memoir and blueprint for prosecutor-led criminal justice reform, which is interesting. I mean, this is so timely that we're talking about this. You hear this term, right, Bianca, criminal justice reform all over the place, but never really prosecutor-led, you know? That's true. Yeah, so it's interesting. Anyway, we'll we'll get into all that and more. 
let's jump right into the truth prescription. People that have listened to my show before know that basically the premise is that we tend to run from truth and because it's uncomfortable. We don't like it. In my experience and the experience of most of my guests, success actually comes when we interface with truth when we're not afraid to deal with it. So I'd like you to tell the listeners something in either, either your personal or professional life that you were either ignoring or you were just not aware of, that once you interfaced with it, once you accepted it, you had a major breakthrough. So many things come to mind, but I think one of the, the biggest is the truth about stigma is so many of the things that are stigmatized are stigmatized because the surest way to maintain an inequity or something that's not a, a good practice across the board is to stop people from talking about it. And we see it in so many ways, right? We hear, we see it addressed and we see it manifest itself in a lot of different ways, whether it be with mental health or with health disparities or with disparities in pay when it comes to you know racial equity and pay. Um, and we also see it so much in criminal justice. And I think the way that it, it first made itself apparent to me was as a federal prosecutor, it takes a while to kind of get up to speed and, and understand what is happening and really see the system holistically when you join a prosecutor's office. But once that happens, I remember thinking, we have all this inside information. We have all the power in the world to make things better. And a lot of times we're discouraged from talking about these things. And I remember at the point that I got very involved with the National Black Prosecutors Association, I was having programming on mass incarceration and the prosecutor's ability to to change that and other things um, about, you know, what is our obligation to our community, the conscious prosecutor? How do I champion and charge my people at the same time? And people were coming to me like, did you get permission to do this? Like, this is so, you know, is it OK? You know, I had spoken to ethics advisors and, and cleared it and all of those things, but people tend to shy away from having these really necessary discussions, particularly from the prosecutor perspective, because as I write about in my book, Prosecutors are the most powerful actors in the criminal justice system, and I'm not the only person to say that. I mean, scholars say that, people acknowledge it. Anyone who's ever practiced criminal law recognizes the power that prosecutors have. When it comes to the truth, I think that realizing that that stigma about talking about things, that discouraging that happens from talking about these really impactful issues is the surest way of maintaining inequity. And, and once I realized that, I just was like, I'm not about to be a pawn. And it was important to me to speak the truth about what I knew. So it's, it sounds like the truth that you realized was that stigmatizing is a way to curtail discussion, right? Or real change. Absolutely. Absolutely. Were you being stigmatized? Was the top, what, what was being stigmatized? What is being stigmatized from, from the perspective of, of what I just described in the prosecutorial landscape is the discussion. The discussion about these issues and you know, all the different ways in which prosecutors have contributed. And there are restrictions on what prosecutors can speak of, as there should be. You should not be speaking about things that are, you know, under investigation and confidential and protected by the grand jury privilege and all of those things. But there are so many other things that are important to public discourse that we ought to be talking about. And I think what happens is folks don't recognize that boundary. And rather than figure out what the boundary is. They just decide, hands off, let me say, let me stand back on it. And we see that not just in the criminal justice space, we see it across the board in a lot of different ways. But I do think a lot of what we've seen, a lot of what our country has experienced in the last year is sort of, is tearing that, that proclivity down. It's interesting. It brings me back to a scene in your book where you talk about how after everything had happened, you came back to work and you had to like sit down with some of your superiors to talk about transitioning into a different role that was actually more interesting to you. 
and they ask you the question basically like, almost like, uh, do you feel like you represented yourself well or represented the, you know, the U.S. U.S. Attorney's Office well in the right way? Well, I think I disgraced the department. Exactly. Uh, right. I could almost see because the, the parallel I'm making is in terms of stigmatization is stigmatization, but it also sounds like a threat. Right. These are the things you shouldn't talk about. And if you continue to talk about them, even though they're not, quote unquote, illegal, then you may suffer professionally. I think that's right. I think that, you know, if there is a perception that you are violating some sort of rule about what you should and should not be speaking about, there are obviously consequences to that. But there are also consequences to putting forth ideas that the people who are in leadership in any organization don't necessarily condone. And there's a risk that comes with that. And I do think a lot of a lot of times, and you see this a lot in government, you see people just going along to get along, stepping into these positions where they have the ability to impact real change and then silencing themselves because it's not compatible, speaking out isn't compatible to their professional trajectory and ambition. And that is such a problem. And that is that is the antithesis of being a change maker. Yeah. It is tough, right? Because you're trying to get in, into these positions so that you can continue to climb professionally. But then it's almost like, okay, you want to go over there? Well, then this behavior is really dissuaded. You shouldn't really be doing that. So just stay there. Follow follow what we've been right. doing, right? right? Right. Interesting. Maintain the status quo. Maintain the status quo. That actually leads into my first question. So it's it's perfect segue. And, and this is so great that during the, the, everything that's going on right now. In your opinion, where does the legal system work and where does it fail? Uh, where does it fall short, actually, from the perspective of a former U.S. attorney? Yeah, the, the where does it fall short is a much easier question. To <laughs> where does answer. it fall short? Yes. And I'm just going to start with there with that. Uh, you know, <laughs> it falls short, I think, in this promise of equal justice for all. You know, we don't see that because of the fact that bias as human beings, we are biased. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. We all have implicit biases and it has been proven scientifically and neurologically to be the case. And what happens when we deny that reality is we take our biases into spaces that we have power and then we use that power in a way, whether intentionally or not, to disadvantage other people. And that possibility is no more threatening than when it comes to people who have a, uh, a fiduciary duty, a duty of care to the public. And that is police, that is prosecutors, that is a lot of, that is doctors. I mean, that is every other, that is everything almost. Like any place where you have power to impact. And if you take biases into that space, you can cause harm to other people. Where I think the system really fails is not not recognizing the truth about bias and not working harder to weed it out. And as I watched the, the trial of Derek Chauvin and I heard Chief Arredondo speak about the policies and the duty of care, and you heard Gary Blackwell talk about in your custody, in your care, and these very aspirational policies about what they think what they think the policies say, there's clearly a disconnect between what the policies say on paper and how they're manifesting themselves throughout their police organization. And it's not just in Minnesota or Minneapolis. It is throughout the world, throughout the country. And as somebody who is now in a global ethics and compliance space where I know what it means to bring life into policy, to make sure that our policies aren't just paper so that our people know how to behave in the hardest of circumstances, there's activity that needs to happen there. It's almost like an internal movement. And if we're not, if we're not being clear about that, all of these things, all of these police killings, all of these 
biased behaviors by police officers and prosecutors and anyone else in positions of power will continue to happen. And I think it's great that we have this pattern and practice investigation that's being opened in Minneapolis right now. Um, you know, as of, as of 2017, there were, I believe, about 69 pattern and practice, practice investigations open throughout the country. And given everything that's happened since 2017, I would suspect that that number has grown exponentially. But what I will say, it's great to do that as a reactive measure, but that's all it is. It's not preventive by any means. And what is it going to find that we don't already know? We have a policing problem. There is a policing crisis. There are things that we can do now to be preventive and instead of reactive. And, and that is what you know I really want to see uh, the system address so that we can stop failing in that regard. In terms of what we do, what the system does correctly? Yeah. Oh, goodness. You're going to have to give me a minute to think about that. Who? <laughs> um, okay, we'll, we'll table that one. We'll table that one. <laughs> As a side note, were you surprised by the results of the Chauvin case? I was. I was surprised. I was relieved. I think I was so hopeful that the jury would see this for what it was that I just had faith that the jury would see this for what it was. Because as a prosecutor, you recognize that the defense's only obligation is to raise doubt, which gives me an answer to to what the system does well. The system does well by imposing this uh, innocent until proven guilty standard, this presumption of innocence by making having requiring juries to find guilt by reasonable doubt, which is the highest standard in our criminal justice system. All of these things which are intended to promote equity and fairness, but because biases get in the way, they just they can be circumvented by the biases. So when I, in terms of being surprised, I think I was hopeful. So I can't say I was surprised. I was proud of the jury, but I also recognize that this is that verdict is something that should have been celebrated in that day and, and we should be happy about, but it, it's it's not curative. I mean, 30 minutes before the verdict was pronounced, we have officers who know nothing about de-escalation shooting a 15-year-old girl four times in her chest. That verdict doesn't bring that young lady back and it doesn't solve the problem of the bias, the bias mentality that these officers take into the communities that they that they view as somehow less than must be because we can see that people can raid the Capitol and leave alive, but a 15 year old girl in a foster home can't act out without you know being pulled out in a stretcher and a and you know dead. The bias issue, I think, is where we need to focus our attention. Weeding it out in the first instance and getting the police officers who de- who demonstrate a bias that cannot be cured at, off the streets because we know Derek Chauvin had multiple instances of uses of force. I don't know what the demographics are of the people who that force was used upon. I'd be curious to know what those things are and where, what type of communities they happened in. But I really do think that bias mentality, that inability to deal uh, in a way that is humane with black and brown people and poor and underserved people is the problem that is going to continue to erode the justice system and trust in the system. Yeah, I mean, I I was telling everybody, oh, he's going to get off. And simply because of what what you're talking about, the bias I did watch closing arguments and I thought that that was when I had a sliver of hope when I watched the closing arguments for the for the prosecution. I said, oh, OK, this, I mean, this is a very, very, very cogent synopsis this guy put together here, especially you remember that graphic when they put up all the days of George Floyd's life as dots. And then it was like it was just this particular day that right. masterful, masterful. Absolutely. Okay, we'll 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 leave that for a second. I, I can tell the, the the passion. I can feel the passion. Feel the passion, as you should, because the, the the next thing I want to talk to you about is what happened with you. And I'll be brief, but the story is that you were visiting family in New York. 
coming from, I believe it was a comedy club, heading back to Long Island, Baldwin. And um, we're pulled over in a traffic stop. And long story short, through all that, they assumed that your partner was drinking. He wasn't. But in your intervention, in, a t- in an attempt to de-escalate, you were arrested on some charge of, I, fig- I forgot the actual name, but I told a buddy of mine as a detective, I was telling him about it. He was like, yeah, that's just, it was something about no, administrative, okay. something administrative, <laughs> right? And I know that your, your criminal case was thrown out, but you have a civil case that's, that's ongoing. The question is this, what would you do differently, if anything, if you were stopped by the police in a similar situation today? That's a really good question. My heart actually skips a beat now um, whenever I see police. uh, Mm, Yeah. You know, they tell us the place to assert constitutional inequity and to raise equal protection claims is not the freeway, right? Um, (laughs) The place to do that is the courtroom. And you have to think, I had the ability and the knowledge to know the different avenues available to me to lodge whatever claims I needed to beyond the criminal justice space. But not everyone does. And you have to remember that our, our system appoints counsel in dealing with criminal, ju- with criminal justice issues, but not necessarily when it comes to constitutional violations in the, in the civil space. Or I shouldn't say not necessarily, it doesn't. What I would do differently. Yeah. <laughs> what do you say to that? Like, how do you tell somebody that you just need to sit there and be quiet and let your rights be violated when the opportunity to for redress is so limited post hoc, like, you know, after the situation ends? And I really do think that black people are just expected to, to be on their best behavior in a way that white people are not and others are not when it comes to police. I talk about it in the book as I'm sitting in the cell and there is this young woman She'd been pulled over for allegedly driving under the influence. She refused to take the breathalyzer. And because of that, she was held overnight and she then had a case. But the whole time she was just bragging about how rude and disrespectful she was to the officers. And I saw that 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 behavior play itself out, even in how she interacted with the guards during my time in custody. And then she told and obviously I only have her word for it. But she talked about how the how the officers apologized to her about having to even effectuate an arrest. This this white woman. And I thought to myself, you got an apology, (laughs) you know, for behaving that way. Meanwhile, the officer comes to my cell and tells me, but for my mouth. Do you hear that? But for my mouth for speaking up in the midst of what I perceive to be injustice, because I had the audacity to, to demand to be treated as any other motorist would be treated because of my mouth. I was spending the night in a jail cell. So when you ask me what I would do differently, not much because I'd be just <laughs> if it happened today. I'd be just as angry if it happened today, and and just as concerned for the safety of my partner. I know the anger would be there, right? Because we understand that we 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 know the concern for your partner is there. I always think about this because things are unequal, and we know that, and it has not changed in a while. Maybe this this trial will start some things changing. I don't know. The way I look at it is they have the power, they have the gun. And so I thought, I'm sure you saw that traffic stop of that um, young uh, lieutenant in the, in the army who was, who was pulled over. Now, they tried to pull him over about a quarter mile back in like some dark, on some dark road. He was smart enough to con- keep driving to a lighted area. And then he just put his hands out. He didn't 
comply with their thing to get out the car. He get got pepper sprayed, et cetera, which was ridiculous. And he'll probably get some money. But I liked his, he was respectful, but he was also, they would have just had to murder him. Like he, there was nothing that he, he could, he, that he did that yeah. they could construe was aggressive. Right. And even when I looked at the young, the young brother that died um, in, in Minnesota, I forgot the brother's name that they had the funeral yesterday. Dante Wright. Dante Wright. In my mind, I'm thinking, again, I'm not condoning any of this. Like, it's wrong. And at the same time, I, I saw, at least in the video, when the second cop came over and tried to manipulate his arm or something, like, he started fighting, started moving. And in my head, I'm like, like, if I had a son, I'm like, just stay still. Like, it's almost like giving these people the triggering them to do what they want to do anyway. I never forget when I was in, um, I was young, I was like maybe 15 or 16 and I was driving around in Brooklyn at night with some of my friends and we got stopped. And this cop literally was egging us on to do something. He was talking about my mother and how I had drugs in the car and I must be a, a, B, a, a BITCA, all of this stuff. He was, he wanted us to fight with him that night. And um, I had a friend that was next to me who started talking shit. I just told him, shut up. And then we left, Right. It was one o'clock in the morning. That could have just turned a whole nother way. And so I like your answer. I wouldn't have done anything differently. The thing I always think about is just out there on that street, unfortunately, they have the power and they have the gun. That's the way it is. And it's messed up. It's true. It's true. But I, I want us as a people to be to be cautious about playing into this idea that because Dante Wright may have been resistant or because... Micaiah Bryant, am I saying this young lady's name, may have been acting out at the time that that this these these behaviors are justified because we know when these officers are in other communities, they know how to handle them better. So yeah, obviously, look, put your hands on the on the steering wheel and and narrate everything that you're doing. But we see right. that even this young lieutenant who did that got pepper sprayed in the face. I know, and he could have gotten a lot worse. Yeah, it could have been a lot worse. He could have gotten know, killed. It doesn't, and I read something the other day and it said, it was basically this, um, a summary of all the things that unarmed black people were doing when they were killed by police. You know, don't play video games, don't put air fresheners in your rear view. And it really minimizes and, and undermines the fact that it had nothing to do with any of those things. Those are not the reasons why our people are dying. Maybe those are the justifications for pulling us over because we know that police use traffic stops as a way to investigate other crimes and they're called Textual, right? And that is something that I think prosecutors have the power to stop and something that needs to end. You know, I believe it's Oregon that their Supreme Court has actually made those sorts of stops unconstitutional. Police can't engage in that type of activity. That's the type of thing that our federal government needs to be doing, not these post hoc pattern and practice investigations that clearly don't lead to real change. Did you see the video of the um, Florida attorney general, black black female, when she got pulled over by, yeah. by police? Oh. Oh, I did. This was about a year ago. Yeah, it was about a year ago. It was so great. It was so the way the way she handled it, because you know she gave him the license, and and then she's like, you know, what 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 was the stop for? And he said, well, some answer. He said, you know, we never seen your tag. We never seen a tag come up like that. And she said, well, why are you running my tag? And he's like, well, you know, we run everybody's tag. She's like, can I? Let me just have your card. (laughs) This is the attorney general of the damn state. Crazy. She wasn't speeding. Then he tried to say she had tents and he couldn't see. That's another thing they like to do. Oh, absolutely. You know, the tent thing. Because I had a, my wife got stopped about about a month ago and she called me balling as the the cop was walking up to the door because she gets really, she 
she doesn't, you know, like how you teared up, you know, you were starting to feel emotional. She's the same way because they claim they couldn't see the license plate. Now I have physician plates on all my cars. Give me a break. Come on. Anyway, moving forward, clearly you've moved past that part of your life. You're no longer a U.S. attorney general. You're doing other great things. You've written a book. How would you recommend, or I'll just say, how have you, and it could still be a process, but how have you transformed that pain into power? I think the book was a big part of that. The book did not start out as a book. It started off as a journal entry, me trying to document everything that happened so that I could have meaningful conversations with my counsel. (laughs) And then, you know, at some point it just trans, it started to become something else. You know, I think it may have happened around chapter four when I was talking about the young man in the adjacent cell who was really acting out. He was justifiably angry at how things had played out in his situation. And there were so many parallels between his situation and mine, even down to the fact that they illegally searched our car and searched my bag. You know, at the point that I started drawing on those parallels and describing them and finding myself going into case law to quote things, I was like, whoa, this is becoming something else. It's becoming something bigger than me. And I felt like I had this obligation to to finish it and execute, particularly after uh, George Floyd was murdered. And I saw that video and they, you know, in the in, in the first instance, they said he was resisting. And I looked at that video and remembered, reflected on my own resisting charge. You know, I was charged with obstructing governmental administration, respected their administration of the breathalyzer for my now fiance, who, by the way, the the, the breathalyzer, to, you know, hadn't even been pulled out yet. But somehow I was interfering with its administration <laughs> and then resisting and didn't resist in any way because resisting is something that can only happen once they attempt to take you into custody, until they try to use any level of force to take you into custody, there is no resistance. You were resisting with your mouth. I was resisting with my mouth, right? Go figure, who knew? (laughs) I say say in the book that, you know, those were just fancy terms that enabled them to put me in in a cage because ultimately it was about me having the audacity to speak up to these large egoed officers who thought to themselves, well, who, who this chick? Who is she to tell me how to do my job, to question me about the way that I'm, I'm conducting my job? And I talk about some of the colloquy between the officer who pulled us over saying things to me like, well, maybe you don't know the law. Why don't you Google it? You know, just really sort of condescending wow. colloquy at the point that I decided that I was going to challenge their request to set my partner out of the car for no apparent reason. Yeah. Listen, I hope you get uh, $80 million. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, you know, I hope you win and win big. And the thing I like is that, you know, it's not like you're just going to take the money and go away. Like, this is something you're going to continue to to champion for. So with that, tell the people what's what's uh, your big vision for Bianca? What would you like to see her in three years? We know you're going to be married. So that's one. <laughs> Maybe with a baby or two. Um, <laughs> one or two. <laughs> but on the professional front. Right now, I feel I have my hands in a decent amount of things. I have some projects that I'm working on that I haven't even made public as yet. And I just the the constant theme through everything that I'm doing is using my platform, my power, my knowledge, um, my education, my expertise to eliminate disparities. Um, And it's not just in the criminal justice space. It's it's in other spaces as well. So I just see myself being an ambassador in every way that I can and just using the platforms afforded to me for good. I don't know exactly what that looks like. But I do know that using my voice and my advocacy is a big part of that. I mentioned that there are a lot of truths that I learned about myself. And one of them was the power of my voice, my, my individual voice, because I was raised in a, in a traditional Guyanese. Guyanese household where, you know, you talk back, all of a sudden you're rude. You know what I mean? There was there wasn't like a, a nurturing of this 
tenacity, right? So for a big part of my life, I spent time holding back. And even in, even in romantic relationships, there were lots of things I didn't say that I should have. Um, and I really do think that stepping into my power and stepping into my voice came with being a voice for other people started off with being a voice for young women who were uh, victims of domestic violence. When I became a prosecutor, men and women, it really did allow me to step into and discover the power of my own voice, my own perspective and my own authenticity. I see myself in three years continuing to use my authenticity to impact change in whatever way I can. Okay, beautiful. Let's jump into yes or BS. So I'm <laughs> going to make a statement and you will agree, disagree. And then if you want, you can give a little uh, synopsis on why. Okay. Do I have time to think about these things or am yeah, I supposed yeah, yeah. to? Yeah, you have time. Yeah, you have time. <laughs> okay. Have time. Okay. Number one. If it was not for the events of 11 Bianca Ford would still be a U.S. attorney. Ooh. Ooh. You know, the book was such... <laughs> book wouldn't have happened. There would have been no book. The book wouldn't have happened and I wouldn't have felt this compelling need to... to to be that voice. Right. And I was, I was working on other things that were impactful in terms of eliminating disparities. So it's possible. (laughs) Right. Right. Because you, I think you felt a real sense of pride that you were, you know, not just a corporate attorney working for people making money that you were actually, you were able to impact systemically. Right. Absolutely. So interesting. Okay. Number two, Trinidad makes the best roti, not Mm. Guyana. <laughs> BS. We had my mother's roti, and let's just be clear. Let's just be clear about something. Trinidad is a, is dal puri. Okay. Diana, okay. They are different. <laughs> all right. Okay. All right. All right. I had to throw that one in there. Oh my God. All right. Number three. Police reform will never happen. Police reform is not effective. We need police transformation. Uh, so when you say reform, we might need to change, change that noun, but, uh, I think transforming the way that we police is possible. I'm hopeful, um, call me an optimist, but I think that, you know, with all the, all the movements that are happening right now, the increased awareness on these issues, the defund the police initiative that people really need to understand just really means divesting resources from the police and putting them into spaces where, where we can eliminate the need for police to, to be frank, right? And where police are ineffective because so many, even so many of the instances where people die at the hands of the police start with mental health crises that police are ill-equipped to handle. So is police reform possible? I think if we use the tools and the knowledge that we have, we are, and the research that currently ex- exists, we can change and improve and we can, we can make the way the policing happens in the U.S. much better. Sorry, I'm, I'm clearly not good at this. No, one you're word. great. You're great at it. <laughs> you know, I think um, it makes me think about the, the documentary 13th. Have you seen that, uh, Ava DuVernay? Yeah. And so I think nobody looks at how policing really started, right? As, yeah. a, as a, basically a, a surrogate of the, the overseer. If you think about it in that context, you can realize what you're saying. It really needs to be a complete overhaul because this, this, the, the, the fruit from the tree that it's coming from is totally off. And it's about control. It's about aggression, keeping people enslaved. And so similarly to your point, you know, we're held to a different standard when we have to deal with police. Right. Uh, I think uh, somebody said it. I think it was Reverend Al said it yesterday or the day before uh, talking about there was a a guy that walked, was walking toward the police with an automatic re- weapon, screaming and yelling and talking crazy to, to them. 
This was recent and mm. didn't die. He Let got arrested. Let's <laughs> lie. Learn how to take us alive. Okay. Right. Can we train how to de-escalate and take our people, my people, your people alive? That is the ask. Yeah, because you literally destroy a generation. Like George Floyd, he may have had more kids. His daughter, you know, the, just the whole thing. You just think about the whole line is now gone forever. And that little girl is growing up without a daddy. You, you know, know, that's terrible. I have three girls. That's terrible. It's just terrible. It's absolutely terrible. And, you know, it's funny. Whenever my wife and I talk about younger women that we know that are, like, having relationship issues, I always say, well, where's the daddy at? Because those are the type of things I would be talking to my daughters about all the time, giving them advice. Absolutely. You know? And, and a lot, and a lot mm-hmm. of times it's they don't have a good relationship with the father or the father is is dead. So it's it's an important role. I mean, fathers and daughters, that's a whole nother show. Anyway. Whole nother show. <laughs> Call me back for that one. I got some good stuff for that one. <laughs> <laughs> did you did I hear correctly? I because I, I was listening to a speech you did. It sounded like you said somebody had seven siblings, but I don't know if that was you or your parents. My mom uh, had a my grandmother had a total of seven children. Good so my mom Lord, yeah. Whew. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. Okay. Um, this is one, two, three, four, number five. Okay, number five. So the 11 lessons in your book, Prosecuted Prosecutor, have been graciously accepted by the prosecutorial community. Oh, have they? Yes. I don't know the answer to that as yet, sir. Okay. But still, I will still building, still building. Okay. Keep, keep, the jury keep going. is still out. You know, I've gotten some feedback, but... You know, I've done this is this is unconventional. Of course. <laughs> it's unconventional because, you know, people leave. I can I don't think, you know, a decent amount of people leave prosecutors offices and write books. A lot of people leave prosecutors offices and write books about how prosecution just continues to break down communities. I wrote a book about how we can make it better and how we can be a part of the change we need to see in the world. I don't know what folks are thinking and, and saying. Yet. I, I will say that I've gotten, you know, a lot of a decent amount of positive response, a lot from the private sector. Um, in terms of folks who are interested in serving in pro bono capacities to defendants around the world or the country, I should say. But yeah, uh, we'll see. TBD, next show. TBD, okay. (laughs) All right, all right. Number six, Dubai is more fun than Boston. Mm. Yes. (laughs) Didn't even have to think about that. That was such an amazing opportunity and experience that really contributed to um, my development. I I made friends, you know, um, definitely gave me insights that I would not otherwise have had as someone who was in a large law firm in New York City, being able to move to Dubai and serve a client so young in my career really uh, catapulted, I think, my my trajectory. So and, and it was just fun. I mean, Goodness, yeah. we could I know. Yeah. I've been I've been there for like I did a quick trip there one time, three, four days, and just the level of opulence and it's just beautiful. Yeah, it's 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 just a different, it's a different space. And for you to be able to live there for eight months, I surmise that that experience probably also informed your reaction in the car that night, right? Because you know, you're like, hey, I know some things. I've been some places. You can't talk to me any way you want, <laughs> you know. You trying to call me an elitist? No, no, of course not. Of course not. But it, it's part of the journey of, of of gaining your voice, right? Obtaining your voice. Like you said, you, similar to me, grew up in households where it was like, just pipe down, stay quiet in the corner, do your work, be good. But yeah. we don't want to hear a whole lot of this, you know, uh, exposition, you, you, know, you got to say. So, yeah. um, Okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a part of my journey and obviously has Im- impacted who I am, how I see the world. You know, the fact that I, I think the world is my oyster. Yeah, all of that probably did contribute to how I reacted in the car. But what mostly contributed was what I'd seen myself personally on body cam 
and and what I knew to be best practices and yeah. the fact that what was happening was not was not best practices. It was worst practices. There was no practices. No, just un, unpracticed. Unpracticed. <laughs> <laughs> Untrained. <laughs> I wonder if those those officers are still working on the streets today. Interesting. Sure they are. Anyway. Sure they are. I anyway. think I'll, I'll have more clarity on that soon. But yeah. Okay. All right. Number seven. You should think hard before taking risks. Look, we all have to take calculated risks. I think that you must have read that recent segment and shout out Atlanta. Um, <laughs> we have to make calculated risks. We have to think about, you know, we just have to think about the whole picture. But as I said in that article, you know, I really do think risks are the, the gateway to opportunity and just ex- extraordinary life circumstances. So many of the things that contributed to where I am today started with me making a risk, doing something, taking a risk and doing something that was unconventional, where people were like, you sure you want to do that? You know, are you sure? Like, are you sure you want to leave big law? You're making so much money. Are you sure you want to take a two third cut in your salary to go be a prosecutor? Why would you want to do that? Sure. You want to move 7000 miles away to Dubai. You don't know anyone there. Your family's here. What if something happens? Like, why would you want to do that? Are you sure you want to like raise awareness about this really bad thing that happened to you and bring attention back to the fact that you were arrested? That's so bad. Like, why would you want to bring attention to that? And I just think if we squander our power by being so afraid of what the world thinks about us, what is the point of even living? Right. You're just going to get to this point where life is at close to its end. And you have to sit and think about how did I use my power? Did I do anything impactful? Did I live up to the, did I live up to my full potential? And I always want the answer to that to be yes. So is that a yes or a BS? Think hard before taking risks. I don't even remember the question. Um, (laughs) Think hard before uh, taking risks. Yes, think hard. But don't be afraid of it. Okay. I'll tell you why I put this question in here. When I work with clients, I find that often... Their, their mind, their thinking actually gets in their way. And so I actually teach them how to turn their mind off and, and really focus more on the heart and more on their instincts around these types of things. Because to your point, all the things that everybody was saying to you from going to Dubai to now, you know, it's their, their mind chatter. It's their fear talking. And a lot of times the, the mind, the purpose of the mind is really to keep us safe, but not to really help us grow. And so I think you don't think when you take risks, you just kind of feel it out like, hmm, is this going to really like, is this putting me in a position where I can be my best self and serve like, the, you know, serve the world, whatever your world is the best I can? Hmm, maybe I should just go ahead and try to do it, you know? And so that, that was, yeah, that was my whole point with that. Last question. You'll love this one. Number nine, number eight, when getting married, the ring is more important than the dress. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> BS, because I'm about to stunt. I'm about to stunt. BS. You're like, they're both just as important. That's funny. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, Bianca, that's all I've got for today. Um, thank you so much. This My was pleasure. great. I feel like we could keep going. We may need to do a part two. I actually do want to do a part two with you. And I'll just announce this now. If you're willing, a, a good buddy of mine who's a retired detective has actually had similar situ- has similar experiences to you being pulled over by other cops and, the, and those interactions that had occurred when they didn't know he was a police officer. And uh, really, really good guy. I, I really feel like he's one of, the, one of the good ones. And he actually policed in the, in the neighborhood where he lived. And so it, it's a completely different approach to the job. 
So um, maybe we can we can we can do that. Let's do it. All right. So before I go, I'm just going to tell folks: make sure you check out this book, Amazon, uh, Barnes and Nobles, BeyondM4.com. You can find it anywhere. It's, it's a great read. Really gives you some insight. And um, we will we will continue this uh, this quest for quick clarification. That website is BiancaFord.com. BiancaFord.com. No M. No M. No M. No M. No M. No M. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> for sure. All right, Bianca. Thank you so much. Uh, we'll sign off as I always do. The truth will set you free if you let it. Mm-hmm.